Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published quarterly by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, premiering March 6, 2015, we'll be speaking with Tunisia-based reporter Simon speakman Cardall about his piece for the journal's winter 2015 edition, Choosing Jihad, on the appeal of radical Islam there and beyond, and thoughts on how to better fight it. We'll also spotlight other top stories in the issue, but first some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the website West Wing Reports. Well, he traveled 5,900 miles from Tel Aviv to speak to Congress, but Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was not invited to travel an additional two miles to the White House to talk about the top foreign policy issue of both Israel and the United States, namely Iran and its nuclear program. President Obama does not want to be seen as meddling in Israel's upcoming election, now just two weeks away. So he and Netanyahu traded conflicting views on how to deal with Tehran. Talks between Iran and the U.S., Britain, France, Germany, China, and Russia, the so-called P5 plus one, are on the verge of a possible breakthrough. But Netanyahu warns such a deal would be bad and says, as he has for years, that Israel's very existence is at stake. Mr. Obama acknowledges these concerns but points out an interim deal brokered in 2013 has actually worked out quite well, defying Netanyahu's own dire forecast. In fact, during this period, we've seen uh, Iran not advance its program. In many ways, it's rolled back elements of its program. And we've gotten more insight into what they're doing with more vigorous inspections than even the supporters of an interim deal uh, suggested. But can there be a final deal with Tehran, a deal that, as described by Obama, would force Iran to halt sensitive nuclear work for at least 10 years? Iran has already called this, quote, unacceptable. We'll likely find out by the end of March, that's the deadline for a framework agreement, and then in June, the deadline for a comprehensive final settlement. The president says if there's no deal, and he puts the odds at 50-50 at best, then sanctions against Iran can always be tightened back up. Iran is eager, desperate, some say, for those sanctions to be removed. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. <laughs> Birth cries of the Arab Spring, such as it ever was, from the streets of Tunis five years ago this winter. As events played out, Tunisia avoided the worst of the region's revolutionary violence, pushback, and repression, holding noteworthy presidential and parliamentary elections at the end of 2014. But even Tunisia sees threats from Islamic radicalization, domestic terrorism, and waves of Tunisian fighters to and from the war zones in Syria and Iraq. And the lessons of Tunisia are worth studying by those in Europe, the U.S., and elsewhere around the world who must now cope with and counter the lure of jihad. Tunis-based journalist Simon speakman Cordall provides a worthy starting point with his article headline, Choosing Jihad, in the current edition of World Policy Journal. I talked with him earlier. Simon Cordall, welcome to World Policy on Air. Hello. 
when you wrote your piece, government forces were girding for the worst during upcoming parliamentary and presidential elections. What finally happened? Well, thankfully, um, very little. We had sort of police throughout the country. I think they even called up the customs officers. But as it was, it was perfectly peaceful. It was a real genuine success for all the parties involved. I mean, we had a little bit of violence um, after the presidential um, elections. People were quite concerned about Sebsi, um, who they associate with Ben Ali, the autocrat of old, getting back in. So there's a bit of trouble in the interior, street fights, but, I mean, very little. In, in all, I mean, it's been a huge success. What's been the overall level and nature of Islamist attacks inside Tunisia since the revolution? Well, it actually it predates the revolution. We had um, the, I always pronounce this on, Suleiman group, who took on Ben Ali's forces, I think, in 2008. But certainly, ever since the revolution, there's been an ongoing, low-level conflict with jihadist groups. Most notably, and again, it's an important fact, and then we'll touch on it later, um, in the interior, away from the coast. We had 16 soldiers killed in June at the start of Ramadan. And we've had you know, an ongoing attack on police um, outposts and the like ever since. Even more worrisome, it's, you suggest, are the numbers of radicalized young Tunisians who have gone to fight in Syria and Iraq or been stopped while trying to do so. The numbers are really surprising. They are. I mean, they're shocking. Certainly, um, you know, for most people, we've, the government, uh, the Ministry of the Interior, estimate that 3,000 at the last count uh, Tunisians are currently actually engaged in Syria and Iraq. They also say they have stopped a further between eight and 9,000 trying to leave to join the jihad. Those numbers don't include um, the ones that are actually engaged in Libya um, with the Libyan Dawn, which is another jihadist group, or the ones that have been stopped there. That n number is unknown. I see. Are these young jihadis mostly the poorest and most hopeless, as we often hear, or the well-off and well-educated, like Osama bin Laden himself, Dr. Ayman Zawahiri, Al-Qaeda's Al -Qaeda's current leader, uh, many of the 9-11 terrorists? It's strange. It cuts across all social groups and, to a degree, um, all sort of geographic areas. Daesh, or ISIS, they sort of recruit according to countries you know one country supplies foot soldiers one country supplies organizers one country supplies officers um it is an extremely well constructed sort of network that they have and tunisia um for the most part is kind of providing the sergeants of jihad everyone here at a minimum is literate um so they make for very good organizers they're also quite experienced in jihad in terms of like in terms of the question, sort of social background, they go all the way up. The guy currently re responsible for running the telecommunications in Raqqa is a Tunisian, and he's a PhD. So we're seeing everyone. Um, some of the people I've talked to that work very closely in this say, I mean, this is hearsay that it appeals very particularly to people with IT or scientific backgrounds. I think there's a certain logic of jihad or Salafism um, that appeals to that cast of mind particularly a long tradition of secular smuggling also fuels tunisia's violent extremism you say it certainly does yeah it's very well connected tunisia is tunisia's history is one of colonization and going back from even the carthaginians through to the romans to to the ottomans the spanish the french and all of them developed the coastal towns and the north leaving the interior to drift that continued um, after independence and 
people react and survive the only way they can in the interior, and the chief sort of industry there is smuggling. So you have very old, very established networks that just go through generations. So you have two things there. You have poverty. You have um, a fairly hostile relationship with either the police or any law enforcement body you, you think. And that's extremely useful to jihadists, particularly this relationship with authority. People in the South are smuggling, where the smuggling mostly happens in the interior, do not feel any great allegiance to Tunis, the government. They see themselves as connecting much more with the region. So when somebody comes with the message of jihad, I mean, it's, a, it's quite an easy sell in that they can say, look, these guys aren't doing you any favors. Your brothers in Syria, your brothers in Mosul are struggling. You know, you need to join the fight. And the network is there for arms, for people, for everything. But, I mean, I think the crisis group have done a lot of work on it. They are seeing what they call the rise of Islamo-gangsterism, where the jihadists are actually almost trying to take over the smuggling networks that have been existing for this time. Who's doing the recruiting, and could the government be doing more to spot and stop the recruiters? Well, that's a very good question. Um, we've had a quick succession of governments. We've had a NAFTA going into technocratic governments, and then most recently, um, Nida Tunis, who've taken over. And during this period, um, the jihadist recruiters have taken over a great number of the mosques. The actual figure is disputed, but they have guys in the mosques physically present, um, which I'm told is different than the European model. Now, Anafta, who were the party for a long time, the suspicion is because they are an Islamist party, though it's very important to stress they're moderate Islamic and democratic Islamists, but there have always been the suspicion that they have turned a blind eye, that they, the recruiters have come along and, and after have said, well, you know, they're kind of basically preaching our message. And if we have these guys in the mosques, that's, that's not going to do us any harm. I mean, the level of Nafta's complicity is that it goes all the way from denied to absolutely complicit. I mean, you've really just got to take your pick. But it's indisputable that it's happened, and the guys are in the mosques. And they are, having, they are being very successful in recruiting young groups of men. With the new government, even though we're only a month in, we're seeing a huge pushback against that already. And, you know, how successful that will be, well, you know, we'll find out. Beyond any reading or misreading of the Koran, you're right, many moderate Muslims say the West's global war on terror, especially graphic civilian casualties, is justifying for jihadis. Talk about that. Yeah. Um, again, you know, we certainly, you know, in the West, we tend to be a little bit myopic about this issue. We give ourselves a free pass on Iraq, which if you're really talking about jihad, you cannot do, um, irrespective of your feelings um, about Saddam Hussein. And I think we can all agree he probably wasn't a very nice chap. Um, we took a functioning state. We invaded it. Um, for reasons that are a mystery to most people, and reduced it to rubble. We didn't win many friends with that. Similarly, you know, we didn't win, well, we're not winning many friends with our support of the Israeli state. A lot of people in North Africa and the Middle East 
they don't see themselves as divided as perhaps European states do. They share a language, formal Arabic, they share a religion, and the borders are relatively new. So when these things happen in Palestine and when these things happen in Iraq, people here, and more so in the South, feel it, and not here. And we also need to remember that during, I think, 2012, 2013, the West, you know, not least the UK and America, we were encouraging people to go to Syria to fight. You know, this was very much in our interest. We were inches away from declaring war with Assad, which, you know, was voted against. But people see that the West encouraging people to go to Syria and the government here again taking part in that and then this vault phase where suddenly the jihadists became the enemy and they were to be punished when they came back. And now I think when people see these civilian casualties, they say, okay, that's the crop that the West sowed when it took these actions in Iraq, in Israel, and when it encouraged people to fight against Assad. Just a brief break here to say this is World Policy on Air. Now back to Tunis-based journalist Simon speakman Cordall. And you remind us that the seeds of the current jihad were planted even earlier, or at least encouraged, by ultra-conservative Salafist Muslims in supposedly friendly Arab states and Western mm-hmm. security services at the counter of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Talk about that and the affirmation, uh, military and moral, that came from the Soviet withdrawal. Yeah, that's, again, it's a good point. Um, the Soviets, I mean, obviously can invaded Afghanistan in the late 70s and and the 80s. And it was very much in um, the Western interest to have them out of there. There was the Mujahideen fighting against them, but, you know, going all the way back to the 18th century, they're a fairly clannish or tribal bunch and extremely factionalized. So that was the situation on the ground. And we had a growing richer um, Saudi Arabia who was very keen to export this creed of Salafism, um, which is a very fundamental reading of the Quran. And it's also, by its nature, very evangelical. And these, you know, things just formed an unholy alliance in that the West and Saudi Arabia conspired to stop building madrasas in Afghanistan to deliberately export Salafism into it and, moreover, weaponize it. And it worked. Um, It united people against the Soviets in Afghanistan. It went into Pakistan. It's proved its worth in the post, you know, after the Soviet collapse. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear it. The call to prayer is happening outside my window, so you can't doubt where I'm coming from. Um, and then, obviously, in Bosnia and beyond into um, the Caucasus, this creed is becoming extremely skilled in the kind of militant combination of religion and war. And it's been proved its worth again and again and again. So it's gained a real legitimacy, a, um, a momentum, and I think a validation over the, you know, the last 20, 30 years. You also talked with moderate imams about why extremist violence like beheading by the Islamic State doesn't produce disgust and defection by more jihadis at home and abroad. No. Um, it sounds disgusting. It is disgusting. Let, let's be clear about it. But there is a certain constituency that when they see what happened to Jim Foley and the other journalists, they're actually going to be drawn towards that. Um, I mean, Scott Action talks it about it, a 
bloody moral virtue um, that people are demonstrating um, their absolute power over life and death. And also, if we go back to this sort of Salafist reading of the Quran, which I, it's vital to stress that, you know, 90% of the Muslim world does not subscribe to this. But these people are seeing their beliefs or what they read actually enacted. They're seeing, that, okay, you know, there they are, Daesh, over in Syria, in Iraq, and they are making this happen. They're building the caliphate, and they are invoking God's law, and they're really doing it, for, you know. And that will, if people are already disgruntled, people are always kind of resentful, this is going to draw them in. Let's look at the other side of the equation, and other side of the equation. Give us some examples of the way the young jihadis' missions to Syria and Iraq affect their parents, uh, the delayed information, the uh, worse misinformation about their children's whereabouts, even whether they're alive or dead. Well, it's, it's horrible, certainly in Tunisia, because, you know, we have a very healthy uh, Muslim tradition here, but it bears no relation um, to what the sort of Salafist doctrine that's, you know, drawing these kids away so the parents are most of the time just utterly perplexed as to why their children would grow their beards and then in the middle of the night with their friends just disappear um and the lines of communication are bad um they can get a phone call at you know in february to say i'm sorry that their son has been killed and they will mourn it will be terrible, and then a month later they will have a phone call from the regime saying that they have their son in prison. I interviewed a family who had seen pictures of their son, and it was quite graphic. He'd been shot in the head, but they were so used to operating within this sphere of just misunderstanding and misinformation that they still refused to believe that he was dead. You know, they needed to see the body. So, I mean, the impact of parents, sisters, and family... Um, of this just constant uncertainty. I mean, you see them. It destroys them. It's, I've talked to husbands whose wives haven't come, you know, left the bed for two weeks because they just don't know if their sons are alive or dead. And, they, you know, they hear conflicting information all the time. Tunisia, like many Western countries, fears the return of native-born jihadis, uh, battle-hardened and trained. Talk about the ways uh, the Tunisian government is dealing with those they know about. Well, not, not particularly well, is the answer. And um, during the elections, after um, the legislative elections, we had a siege in Manuba, um, which is actually near Tunis. And that was, we are told, re you know, returning fighters. The policy at the moment is completely ambiguous. Um, it seems to be an ad hoc way of dealing with those that do return. They are almost certainly, you know, um, getting a good kicking, whatever way they look at it. Um, they are imprisoned. Um, there have been countless um, investigations. I, I've talked to some of the people myself um, that the prisons are just premier recruiting grounds for jihad. And a typical fighter is put into prison for a minimum of a month, even if they were just, which the vast majority are polishing boots, you know, 200 miles away from the front line. Um, but even if they're a no-mark out in Syria and Iraq, when they're in prison, they are a big deal. And when they're in there, all they're doing is making other little jihadists who are either going to fight here in Tunisia 
or maybe even, you know, return to Syria and Iraq. And it's just not working. I mean, you know, if we look at the history of ISIS, it always comes back to prisons. And many of imams that I've spoken to are saying, this needs to be fixed. You know, we need another route. There's a lot of discussion what that route would be, but that to replace the passion that comes with jihad for creating the caliphate, you cannot get rid of that kind of passion. It needs to be diverted. It needs to be channeled into something else. And lots of people have their own ideas about what that would be. I think we all need to come together and actually just have one idea, maybe. Well, give us some, some examples. I mean, what do some of the moderate imams say would be a better way to divert these passions? Well, um, some people say would be, you know, to have these guys actually proletize against jihad, to just channel that passion into putting these people, you know, within their communities and saying, you know, I've been there and I've seen it and it's not good. And, you know, there is a little bit of dissatisfaction that we hear from people in Syria and Iraq. And the most thing that we hear is that it's boring. Um, which sounds completely counterintuitive when you see the TV. But what the TV doesn't often show you is that the bulk of people are, you know, um, keeping their electricity on. Um, They are, you know, making sure the roads are open. And when they've been sold this idea of holy war, of, you know, um, taking part in the final days, which, you know, the Quran talks about and the recruiters make a big deal of that you know the the last stand of civilization and they go over to syria and they're put in charge of cleaning toilets there's a bit of resentment there and a lot of the people that are coming back you know are from that kind of background rather than you know frontline soldiers and these are the people that would be could be very powerful to put back into the communities and say you know they will tell you one thing and the reality is different and if we could use that passion to spread. I think there might be something in it. Simon Cordell, thank you. No, thank you. It's been very interesting. Tunis-based journalist Simon Speakman Cordell tweets at Ignition UK. Also featured in the current issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on Scotland's wee dram of independence, on the new polarized voting patterns of Europe, and on the sad song of immigrants in Brazil. Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk with Hannah Ray Armstrong, Algiers-based fellow of the New America Foundation, about her journal piece, Africa's Last Colony, on West Sahara and its longest-running, most peaceful, and most forgotten anti-colonial struggle. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.